Okay, so I'm riding on a plane a couple months back, flying on home. It's late, people are sleeping, reading magazines, whatever. And I'm trying to rip open a bag of peanuts when the pilot gets on the intercom. Folks, I'm not sure if I should be telling you this, but nothing to worry about. If you look to the left side of the plane, you'll see three lights following close behind us, and I'm not sure what they are. Nighty-night. What? What did he say? I pull open the little shade, look out the window, and sure enough, I see them. Three orbs or pricks of light. They're following right behind the plane, and each lighted thing is kind of spinning around the other in a slow pattern. They're right there. I mean, we are 40,000 feet in the sky, and something is following us. Not for a little while. I'm watching this for like 20, 30 minutes, and then a fourth light shows up and the other lights kind of dance around it. And then it's boom, 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 boom. The lights just fly off crazy fast. They're gone. The last one stays for an extra moment. And boom. It's off too. I look around the cabin just to be sure I'm not crazy and people are looking back at me and it's like, did we just see that? What was it? I have no idea. I still have no idea. Some say the truth is out there. Some say it's best not to know. Aliens, government conspiracies, time travelers, mysteries abound. Well, today on Snap Judgment, we're giving chase. Stories about visitation, abduction, contact with entities whose origins may or may not come from another corner of the cosmos. My name is Glenn Washington. Buckle up. Get ready, because today, from PRX and NPR, I'd like to welcome you to Snap Judgment. It's a strange world, and we can't wait for you to hear about it, because today on the show, we're going to start off at the Center for All Things Wild and Wonderful, Nevada, Area 51. What happened when you were in fourth grade and you went out into the Watch the Night Sky in Vegas? I took a trip to uh, Area 51 to go UFO hunting. I was basically along for the ride while my friend got to reunite with his dad, who he didn't live with, and this was going to be an adventure that he was going to take us on. You know what we're going to do, kids? <laughs> we're going to leave Vegas and drive out in the middle of the desert and stare at the mountains at night, right? Like, okay, <laughs> crazy dad. <laughs> He um, had begun to prep us in this way of like, what we're going to see is going to change your lives. You know, there's stuff that's going on out there that will blow your mind. We uh, arrived at the Little Ailey Inn in Rochelle, Nevada, an outpost in the middle of the desert dedicated to UFO mythology. And the Little Ailey Inn is a double-wide trailer, plaqued with newspaper clippings, phenomena, paraphernalia, and you can rent a room. The terrain is this. There's an infamous black mailbox that belongs to a farmer that shares land that borders Nellis Air Force Base. So we have a topographical map. We can see our location. We can see the mountain range in front of us. And where the top of the mountain range should be, it drops off into what's called Groom Lake Groom Lake is where lots of people who have been whistleblowers of Area 51 said that the base was located. Right over the edge of this range, people had been witnessing these phenomena that were extraterrestrial or UFO-like. And it's a no-fly zone. There's no clouds out that night. It's crystal clear. There's a great glow coming from the other side of this mountain range. A glow as in huge stadium-type lights blasting into the sky. These were signs that were good, that you might see something. People said, that's it, you see the glow, you're good to go. Lo and behold, we start to see what look like jet lights in the sky. They're blinking. It was like, oh, there we go. That's it. They're testing some sort of jet, you know. The blinking becomes erratic. And then my friend sees another one way off. Oh, there's another two sets, right? So four lights. And then all kinds of weird things start happening. You know, I saw a shape, a silhouette of an M shape. It's one machine that was spinning or rotating that caused the lights to appear and disappear. And I was, I was scared. 
It's really windy out there. Really windy and cold. And I remember thinking, I have to endure this. It was one of these moments of physical stress that you wanted to push past. And this was the creepy awe moment. Within seconds, the entire sky was filled with them. I tried to count and lost count around 20. We have a pair of binoculars, and I lock in on one. Okay, what's going on with this one? So I locked onto one globular of lights, and it disappears. Where'd it go? So I held, I held, and I'm waiting to see something. Lo and behold, but a little bit off, they came on, and ooh, it's over there. This thing is jumping miles in the sky, sitting in one spot, and then Like his dad said, he had told us earlier in that day, getting to see something's like hitting the jackpot in Vegas. And so here we are in fourth grade, we have no perception of money, that means nothing to us. But this is like an experienced jackpot. This is like the jackpot of knowledge. You know, my view of reality is the size of my fist, and now all of a sudden, it seemed infinite. You have to go. This is a must. Because I've taken every girlfriend I've ever had afterwards out there to explain who I am so that they can see how truly crazy I am and either accept me <laughs> or dump me. <laughs> it's the great test. And are you single now? <laughs> yes, I'm single now. <laughs> Big thanks to Alexander Paul for sharing his story. It was produced by our own Rita Daniels, Mark Ristich, and Pat Masidi Miller. Now... We have real heroes walking amongst us, people who know what it's like to alight upon an alien landscape. Snap Judgment regular contributor Jeff Greenwald spoke to one of these giants, and, you know, as is usually the case with Jeff, the story he heard is not the one we expected. In July of 1999, the 30th anniversary of the first manned lunar landing was approaching. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I got an assignment from Salon.com to interview Buzz Aldrin. I met Buzz at his penthouse suite on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. The first thing Buzz said to me after he shook my hand, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't ask me what it felt like to walk on the moon. I get asked that all the damn time, he said, and I'm sick of it. For one thing, it's a stupid question, and for another thing, it's an impossible question to answer. I was immediately rendered speechless and a bit sheepish by by his remark. So... Buzz and I went out and I said, well, is there anything you would like to be asked? Any questions that you really haven't been asked before? Buzz kind of furrowed his brow a little bit and he looked at me and said, you know, I've really never told anyone how I felt about walking on the moon. (laughs) And I, I said, well, what do you mean? I was extremely confused because of his prior comment. And he said, well, the most extraordinary thing happened. After the the moon landing, after we'd flown back to Earth, they placed us in a confinement, like sort of an Airstream trailer. We were in quarantine for three weeks to make sure we hadn't brought any bugs back from the moon. President Nixon came down and famously spoke to us. But we were sitting there, and it gets kind of boring in in quarantine, he said. And at one point, the captain of the ship comes down to the trailer and asks them, would you guys like to see some of the footage from the moon landing? Sure, let's see it. They pass the footage through the little slot, and the three of us sat there wrapped and we watched the crowds who were watching our live moon landing in in Rio de Janeiro, and we watched them watching us in New York City and in Peking and in Paris, France. And at one point, Neil just turned to me and he said, Buzz, we missed it. We missed the whole thing. And our mouths dropped open because it was the absolute truth. We'd been there. We'd lived that moment. But we didn't share in that experience that so many human beings on that day in July shared together. This was one of the greatest moments in the history of the human race. It was a moment where everything changed. (laughs) 
So after we had dinner, Buzz and I went walking back towards his penthouse apartment, and the crescent moon hung in the sky. I put my hand on Buzz's shoulder and I stopped him. How do you feel when you actually see the moon in the sky? And Buzz looked up at the moon with a kind of serious gaze on his face and he said, well, people would like to romanticize it, he said, but for me, though it's as beautiful as it is for anyone else, it's really just a place I went to work. It's a place we got our boots dirty. And that may be true, but here's the fact of the matter. If you have enough money, you can get to the top of Mount Everest. You can dive down to see the wreck of the Titanic. You can even pay the Russians $40 million to take you up to the International Space Station. But no amount of money is going to get you to the moon. Only 12 human beings in all history have ever stepped foot on the moon, and Buzz Aldrin was one of them. And though we may know that Neil Armstrong was the first person who ever set foot on the moon, it's Buzz Aldrin's footprint that we see in the pictures. Many thanks to Jeff Greenwald, and many thanks to Buzz Aldrin. But Buzz, he's not the only one of this elite group that pushed to break the boundaries of Earthbound existence, no. We're taking you back to 1959, before the first spacecraft rocketed into outer space. There was an intrepid fighter pilot from Florida who became the first man in space, and you're shocked, right? You didn't know that, right? Thought so. This man, brought to you by Snap Judgment, was the first human ever to be in space. No protective rocket, no pressurized cabin, just a man alone. I'm uh, Joe W. Kittinger from Altamont Springs, Florida, USA. When I was a young boy, uh, all I thought about was flying airplanes, and I built airplanes and dreamed about them. And I used to get on my bicycle and ride out to the airport and watch airplanes take off and land. And that airport was my field of dreams. I was 31 years old. The program that I was working on was called Project Excelsior, and that Latin means higher, ever higher. And that's what we were doing. We were going higher and higher. Man had never been in an actual space environment. Our objective from the very beginning was to go to 100,000 feet. People had been up higher than that, but they'd been in airplanes with pressurized cockpits. Uh, I was the first person to go into space with protected only by a pressure suit. And that was the purpose of the project, was to go into space and find out if men could survive. We had a pretty good idea, but the only way to really find out was to do it. I was an experimental test pilot, and I was a trained parachute jumper. There was a lot of people said that I would die, and a lot of people said we couldn't, that nothing would work. We just ignored what those people said. We had to use a balloon to get up there because there wasn't any airplanes that would take us that high. The balloon is laid out and inflated with helium, and when it's been inflated, I'm being dressed. They release the balloon, and off we go. The balloon climbs at about 1,000 foot a minute. It's just a round aluminum uh, basket. It was, it was an airborne elevator. There was an open door there, and I could see uh, 300 miles, so it was quite a perch, quite a view. It was a, a beautiful view. When you look up, the sky is dark, black. When you're up there above the Earth's atmosphere, there's no uh, sunlight up there. I said, Lord, take care of me now, and I jumped. When I jumped, I was supposed to free fall for 16 seconds. I only fell two seconds, and the parachute deployed, but lacking sufficient velocity, it wrapped around my neck. I started spinning to the left, and I stopped it, then I started spinning to the right, and I stopped it, then I had a violent turned to the left and I became unconscious. And I was unconscious until the reserve emergency parachute opened at 10,000 feet. I was disappointed and the first thing I did was to call my boss and say I want to do it again as soon as I can because I have confidence in the equipment. The last jump I made, that was 103,000 feet. I was elated because we were there. You know, we'd worked a year and a half now. I was anxious to do the next step and that was to jump out of the gondola and head back down to the friendly earth. I stood up, I jumped. I was falling extremely fast, uh, 614 miles an hour. I wanted to see how fast I go. I rolled over my back and looked up at the balloon and the balloon was firing into space. 
And then I realized that the balloon was stable and it was me that was falling at a very high rate of speed. Well, when I landed, my uh, ground crew came roaring up in vehicles and a helicopter. We were elated because we had accomplished something that everybody said we could not do. Man could survive being in the space. Man could survive and escape from high altitude. So we were a very happy group of people. The stabilization parachute developed during Joe Kittinger's jumps is used to this very day by every airplane ejection system in the world. We'll have a link to Joe's book, Come Up Here and Get Me, on our website, snapjudgment.org. The story was produced by Anna Sussman and Mark Ristich. And now, it's about to be on when Snap Judgment, the Spaceman episode, continues. Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. Now, when I was a kid, we lived for a while in a double-wide trailer out in rural Michigan. And this wasn't a trailer park or nothing. This was a home dropped in the middle of Nowheresville. And my uncle came to visit, and when he saw the place, he got all nervous. He was all nervous, and he said the place was too far away from anything to be safe. And we tried to tell him, hey, 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 you don't have to worry about nothing out here. We keep the house unlocked. Nobody's going to give you a problem. See, these are good country folk. And he was like, no, 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 no. Not the people. This is where UFOs like to come and mess with you. And, you know, before my uncle got there, I really wasn't too much worried about UFOs and everything because it didn't really come up much. But he started explaining about how the Kennedy assassination and the Nation of Islam tied into some of the more recent sightings and how the little green men thing was propaganda meant to trick us. And that all the real evidence pointed to extraterrestrials looking like Bigfoot. And of course, you know, I had to admit that it really did start to make some sense. And my uncle said, you gotta be careful out here in these woods, you know, you gotta be careful because right here in the heartland, that's where the war is being fought. And my father came in and told him to stop all that nonsense, said it was time for bed. But my uncle nodded at me. And I nodded back, you know, to let him know that I was down with the program. It wasn't trying to fool with any extraterrestrial Bigfoots or nothing. And went to bed. And I was lying there thinking things over. And I heard this noise. Faint at first, but growing louder and louder until there was this cataclysm. And it felt like an alien army was coming down from the sky. And then I saw all the lights, all kinds of lights shining down from the heavens. And the trailer was trembling under the fury. And my uncle started screaming, it's them, it's them. They come to get us and they can't get us. And we all ran crazy to the living room to escape. And I was screaming and my brothers were screaming and my uncle was screaming. And my father opened the front door. He walked outside looked up into the blazing night sky and my father waved and the cacophony and the lights and the wind lifted off and disappeared into the country night sky my father came back inside and said (laughs) that Carl gotta show off his new crop duster helicopter thing he's gonna fall right out of the sky if he ain't careful I stopped screaming then I stopped screaming and I looked at my uncle 
and my uncle looked not at me. Instead, he decided that he had to go back in the guest room real quick in a hurry to attend to an urgent matter of some different sort. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't talk about it. In fact, no one ever spoke about it until this very moment. Today, on Snap Judgment, we're looking for close encounters of the strange kind. And who else? Who else in all the world should I turn to first but our own Rita Daniels? And let me warn sensitive listeners, this story does evoke some graphic images. Listener discretion is advised. There's a lot of strange things going on in New Mexico. And one of the strangest is a phenomenon called cattle mutilations. And it's so mysterious that almost nobody is willing to talk about it. Except Philip Contu, because he knows all about it. I'm here at Philip Contu's. He did a lot of investigations on these cattle mutilations uh, before getting fired, supposedly. Well, what did you want to talk about? When did you start working for the New Mexico State Livestock Board? I uh, went to work as a deputy for them in 1991. At that time, we uh, traveled all around the district investigating cattle rustling. It was ideal. It was a perfect job. You know, we could uh, load our horses up in the morning and just take off. And Best job I ever had. One day... Philip got a call, and there was a very strange death of a heifer in Upper Ranchitos. This heifer had been separated from the herd and moved into this corral where uh, whoever or whatever proceeded to mutilate her. Well, I'd heard about cattle mutilations for a long time. I'd never seen one. This happened on my watch. It was unsettling, and she had the most horrendous god-awful wounds. And an odd assortment of body parts were taken. She had a piece of flesh cut out of her side. It was cut right down to the tenderloin. The rectum had been cored out, the genital had been taken off, the tongue had been cut out, the eye was missing, the ear was missing, the muzzle had been snapped off, and uh, there was no blood, there was nothing. It was just taken off and, and disappeared. Although the damage was extensive, eerily enough, it was extremely exact. It was done with such precision, and the bone itself, it was dry. There was no fat on it. There was no tissue on it. I've never seen anything like that before. This was just as clean as, as new fallen snow. And uh, what was really bizarre is there was no tracks, there was no blood, and it was laying there in plain sight. This is in the middle of a neighborhood, and nobody saw anything. And I thought, well, how in the heck did this occur? It was just a mysterious cattle death. That was my introduction to to those things. So Philip files a report with his findings with the New Mexico State Livestock Board and goes on with his job. But then more and more of these unusual animal deaths, or cattle mutilations, began popping up all over the district. Some of them were absolutely spectacular. The incisions were so precise. And uh, there was like a ring around them, about 50 feet in diameter, that nothing would come in there. The ravens would land outside of that circle. The coyotes would come up almost like to a line and just walk around it, you know. And then they wouldn't decompose. They'd just stay there forever. Even though this is Philip's first encounter with cattle mutilations, there's been waves of them in New Mexico for the past 40 years. The FBI already investigated and closed the case. The official explanation? Predators. We were supposed to say that it was predators. And absolutely it was not predators. Uh, Dogs, uh, ravens, and bobcats, uh, mountain lions. They don't do that kind of stuff. So what were the ranchers that were losing all their cattle? What were they thinking? 
name's Jesse Gonzalez, and I raise cattle for a living, so I know a lot about animals. I know a lot about the land, plants, whatever. Jesse lost a total of seven cows to mutilation over a two-year period. The first mutilation that happened really freaked me out. Okay, so I arrived to the scene. I see one of my bulls dead there. Just in the field? Just in the field. I check it out. An eye was missing, an ear was missing, testicles, the penis, it's all gone. No blood, no nothing. I find him, it smells like the animal's been dead for two weeks. Weird, it's a weird, creepy thing. Did you report the first one? Uh, I did report that one actually, but nobody showed up so I just buried it. It smelled too bad. Ranchers are used to death. You don't call the authorities every time a cow dies. But the predator explanation didn't make sense. You know, every animal I had is healthy. I'm not a stupid person. I know, I know what a natural death is. Okay, like a wolf will kill like the weakest or the youngest? No. Every single animal I had, they all been the best animals I had. They're the strongest. Every single one. So not only were the ranchers losing the very best of their breed, but Philip, the inspector, was getting reports of animals showing up in really strange places. Inside of thickets, you know, got one report where uh, these guys had been missing this bull for forever. They couldn't find the doggone thing, and they finally found the doggone thing up in a cottonwood tree. You tell me. <laughs> Another rancher in the area, Tony Trujillo, was losing cattle as well. And right before his cows were mutilated, Literally within hours, he saw these huge, round, circulating lights in the sky. There's a little house, if you see it back there. Yeah. Saw a bunch of lights down there, but he didn't know what, what was going on. No. What was it like? It's just big, round, revolving a bunch of lights coming towards me, and then it just takes off. I mean, it disappears real fast. It disappeared over the hill. And then the next morning you went out and you found your cow? The next morning I found my, my cow all mutilated. No? And then afterwards you went and took your shotgun and sat on top of the hill? I'd go up there and maybe come back for another one and I'll let him have it with a 22. <laughs> <laughs> Hope it does him good? I'm a good shot, but I don't think I could hit whatever it was. <laughs> maybe, never know. So you think maybe it was UFOs? Cause That's what I think, no. There's something strange out here and it, we never seen before, no. Other ranchers began patrolling more and more with their rifles, and it's not in vain. Around this time, Philip meets another cowboy who's forced to draw out his gun and fire in order to defend his herd. One of the ones that happened about that time was uh, kind of curious, so I went up to investigate. Uh, fellow went to check the cows and uh, heard what sounded like an arc welder. This cow was being dragged towards that sound. And according to him, había una raya de luz, which is a ray of light, a beam of light, was carrying this animal across a field inside the beam of light. And uh, this cow was being dragged towards that sound, and it was struggling. And the guy took a couple of shots into the aspen grove where the noise was coming from. The noise had stopped. The cow had got up and run away. The beam of light went across the pasture, across these fences, and then went up into the sky where it disappeared into the blue sky. And somebody saw this? Yes. That kind of reinforced my thoughts on one of the things that could possibly be happening. You know, you can use your own imagination. I mean... And did you guys talk amongst yourself with your coworkers of, of what yeah. your opinions were? Yeah, we did. We talked about it amongst ourselves, but we never put it on paper. What were the different opinions? Well, there were two kinds. There was the extraterrestrial angle, but also thought the government was involved. It's actually a, a theory that's very widely accepted among locals in New Mexico, that the government is doing this to these cows. Because these round circulating lights are not the only thing that's showing up in the sky around the time of the mutilations. There's also these mysterious black helicopters. As I investigated more and more of them, the uh, pattern was the same. There was usually some kind of uh, helicopter activity a couple of days before you'd find the animal. So there was reports, usually? Of black helicopters with no numbers, no insignia of any stripe. Some of these 
craft uh, made no sound. Some of these craft had no, uh, no rotors. Some kind of cloaking device, I guess. In my opinion, I, I really think it's the government doing They got a lot of technology out there. I think they're scaring people. Some people said that they had been picked up in one place and dropped off in another place. The animals themselves. Yes, that they had been lifted up with straps, which is a possibility. They might have been picked up by the legs and dropped somewhere. If these black helicopters do belong to the government, then the question remains, why in the world are they coming in the middle of the night and mutilating cattle? Could have to do with uh, the government investigating uh, fallout from Los Alamos. Los Alamos is in Los Alamos National Labs, where the atom bomb was developed. And it's located about 50 miles from where all these mutilations were taking place. Because uh, they've had a lot of radioactive stuff escape from there, and they might have been just taking those tissues where they say that the, the radioactivity would have uh, settled in their bodies. Who else could be doing this? I mean, it's either aliens or it's the government, or it's both of them. I don't know. In order to really get some answers, Philip went out on the next investigation armed with a team of specialists. It was a crime scene investigation, essentially. We had a vet. We had a forensic pathologist, and we did a necropsy on that animal. And there was a kind of chemical smell. This is kind of bizarre. The tip of the penis was there in the sheath. The rest of the penis had been removed inside the animal. Don't ask me how. (laughs) The vet and forensic pathologist examined the animal without any gloves on. After that, both of them had numbness in their hands. And that persisted for several days, the numbness in their hands. Because they had touched the animal? touched the animal. We took samples and we shipped them off to a a private uh, lab where they uh, did all the testing. And uh, some of these animals had uh, powder sprinkled on them that you could uh, pick up with an ultraviolet light. It came back that uh, the hemoglobin in the tissue had been cooked. So it was cut out with high heat. When you would turn in your reports, was there anything that your superiors would say? Or? Not to me. I know my uh, supervisor got a lot of heat. You know, they'd ridicule him and they'd make fun of him. And uh, But he stuck to his guns. He would not say it was coyotes because it wasn't. Philip continued to do his job. It started taking some really weird turns. And then one night, Philip got a call to go look at a horse. And while he was gone... His family got a visit back at the ranch. Might sound nuts, but <laughs> my kids woke up in the middle of the night and there was a UFO over my corral and the horses were running around braying at, at the UFO. And I came back and, uh, and Dory was pretty beside herself. Dory is Philip's wife. Let me tell you what she told me, if it's okay with you. Sure. Outside of our window, we were on a had a two-story house. There's this giant eye, what looked like a giant eye, outside of our house. And she was in bed. She couldn't move. She was like frozen. And these little creatures came in to the bedroom and surrounded her on the bed. It was real scary seeing these heads of aliens. And she was begging them not to take her because of the kids. They scared me, yeah. These things uh, were very upsetting. Aliens threatening his family? This was out of control. Philip was too scared to talk about it, but a reporter begged him for an interview. I wouldn't talk to him. Then he told me, would you talk to me off the record? And then I said, okay, I'll talk to you off the record. Well, I talked to him, and it came out on the front page of the Albuquerque Journal the next Sunday. Make a long story short, I got fired. What was published? I did tell him that this was an act of terrorism. The people were involved were absolutely mortified. They were scared to death. It shook their faith in in everything they believed in, that there might be other entities from other planets which uh, aren't really talked about, which, uh, you know, led to my demise as, as far as the livestock board went, which was unfortunate. It was a good job. Although cattle mutilations are still happening today, no one has ever been arrested for them. But Philip, he moved on. 
since I'm no longer involved, I, uh, I don't spend as much time looking at the sky as I used to at night. And it's behind me now. I just hope it don't happen to me. That story was brought to us by none other than Rita Daniels, Mark Ristich, and Renzo Gorio. And we'd like to thank just some of the scores of people involved in helping put it together, especially Philip Cantu, Jesse Gonzalez, Tony Trujillo, and additional help from Fedra Greenwood, David Perkins, Pamela Harris, Steve Kennan, and Mitch Gonzalez. Now, have you seen some other stuff that Rita needs to come out and investigate? Let me know on our website, snapjudgment.org. We've got pictures, full episode podcasts, and I kid you not, a full Snap Judgment movie. Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, hit me. Share your stories and hear from snappers all over the world. Snapjudgment.org. And please understand, this ride is not slowing down because next up, we're crossing dimensions, going forward in time. And we're about to have a close encounter of the strangest kind you've ever heard when Snap Judgment, the Spaceman episode, continues. Snap Judgment, the Spaceman episode. Today, we're diving into this world of conspiracies and black helicopters, unknown creatures, and men in black. All of it pointing towards various mysteries lost in the cosmos. Our next guests, there were art students, four of them when they set off for a normal fishing trip in backcountry Maine. The experience they had in those woods changed them forever. It was in the summer of 1976 when Jack decided to go on a fishing trip. He took his twin brother Jim and their friends Chuck Rack and Charlie Foltz. We figured we'd be out fishing for quite a while. On their fourth night of the trip, they set up camp on Eagle Lake, then built a fire to act as a beacon while they tried to catch their supper in the dark. We built that thing to last four or five hours. It was pitch black that night, not a whisper of the moon at all. We had our lines out, and we were sitting there just enjoying the night. And then Chuck Rack said, what the blank is that? Well, we all turned, and I saw this light. It was so big and so bright, and it was just slowly lifting up out of the trees. I would estimate it was as big in diameter as a tractor-trailer truck is long. It was about the size of a a two-and-a-half-story house, completely spherical in shape. Charlie Foltz goes, well, we don't know what it is, so why don't we signal it with a flashlight and see if it does anything? The instant that I did that, this sphere of light responded by sending a shaft of light straight down that hit the water's edge and started coming across the water toward us. We were just surrounded in this light. And then the next thing I remembered is uh, we were standing on the beach. We were in shock, and this thing was hovering right in front of us. And then all of a sudden, it just went that fast. As fast as you could snap your fingers, it was gone into the stars. At first, they didn't talk about what they had seen. Instead, they went straight to bed. 
The next morning, they felt re-energized. Uh, we were all pumped and excited about it, you know. Wow, my God, that was a UFO. Holy crap, you know. We reported it to one ranger. He goes, well, boys, I don't know what you've been putting in that pipe you're smoking, but I'd lay off it for a while. And uh, we kept telling people, why would we make this up? I mean, why would we make up a story that no one's going to believe? You know, I mean, that's it just it really did happen. Eventually, they stopped telling people because no one believed them. They say their personalities were overtaken by compulsive behaviors. They had crazy nightmares. Their art was unrecognizable. Before the trip to the Allagash, Jack painted landscapes and cityscapes. After, he was obsessed with math and started constructing unusual paper sculptures. It was obsessive behavior that was totally unlike anything I was doing before. The minute I got back, I stopped painting. I stopped using color. And it was just this continuing quest for something that I didn't know what it was. Jack's brother began seeing a psychiatrist and talked about the nightmares he was having. His psychiatrist says to him, well, it's not like you've ever seen a UFO or anything, right? Jim's like, well, you know, actually, I have. And so he told his psychiatrist about the Allagash sighting. And his psychiatrist said, have you ever heard of alien abduction, Jim? Jim's therapist recommended that Jim, Jack, Chuck, and Charlie see a hypnotist. They were introduced to Tony Constantino, a professional hypnotist. This is hypnosis session number one for Charlie Foltz. The date is May 20th, 1989. In and I walked in and I just basically told him about what I remembered from that night. It's right there. It's looking at me. How does it look at you? The sighting on the Allagash had actually been an elaborate alien abduction experience. It was like almond shaped, like sort of egg shaped. Long, thin neck, like a girl. Delicate. The beings themselves, Slight I believe they describe them as the typical, the typical gray. I said, I want to get out. Back in a canoe. By the time I was done working with these four individuals, I felt what I can only describe as genuine terror because I believed them. That idea that they had been abducted changed everything. After hypnosis, they had an explanation for their strange dreams and bizarre behavior. The hypnosis was proof to them that this was real. A lot of people do think you're nuts, you know, when you tell them this, and people will just say, you know, stay away from my kids, or you're crazy. 20 years later, the abduction is still a big deal. And although they are shunned by many, they have achieved international notoriety as the Allagash Four. The Allagash Four are not alone. They found a community of believers and other abductees. There's a couple of ways that I'm different, I believe, because of that experience. One of the things is when I look at the night sky, I don't wonder if there's life out there besides life here. I know there is. Many thanks to the producer Molly Graham at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies and our own Anna Sussman. And now, before his amazing current situation, I have known the Uber producer Mark Rissage to make some very odd dating choices. We here at Snap Judgment just persuaded him to tell a little story about one of the oddest. Sunday brunch family event. Seems simple, but it's not. They wanted to know why I was dating a girl from a different dimension. I said, that is my prerogative. I can date who I choose. They said, you obviously are not satisfied with the people here in this dimension. I said, that's not true. I just happened to meet her. How do you happen to meet someone from a different dimension? And I said, there is this cafe. I met her there across the wireless network. And our streams got crossed and I found her attractive. They said, it appears she has no face. I said, she has a face, but if she shows her face, 
she will never be able to return to her dimension. They said, what is the problem with that? What's wrong with this dimension here? I said, well, you know, number one, she doesn't have a passport. Well, isn't she from America? And I said, well, in her dimension, the country is not called America. It's the same continent. It's North America. It's not even called America. Well, they were having none of that. And uh, they said, never you mind. Either way, brunch did not go well. They promised to build me faster, so they could build me stronger. Six million dollar man? Chump change. Try $2.5 billion, partner, and right after the accident, DARPA got the green light. And crazy doctors, techies, scientists, hundreds, thousands of them went to work. Because everybody wanted to test out their goodies. Infrared, tactical vision, implants, augmented skeletal spinal system, nanobots. One second, my hand's a hand. The next second, it's a cannon. Now it's a flamethrower. And yeah, you think it's cool, right? All this junk is real 3.0. But they had to add one more thing. They had to test what would happen. See, artificial intelligence has been the holy grail. The eggheads, they're smart, but they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't get real intelligence to evolve in a digital space, so they had another idea. Patch some guy's head directly to the grid, my head, my brain. All the information in all the world pulsing through my skull every second of every hour. Everything. Everything. It's like drinking Niagara Falls. It's too much. It's way too much. And that's why when I first woke up, I couldn't move. The roar of that much information. Take it out. Take it out. Take it out. Take it out. They said they couldn't take it out or I would die. Let me They said I had to exercise. They said it would soon feel better. It didn't feel better. I slept while through the first few assignments. Couldn't think with that roar of ones and zeros. It would never leave me alone. Still, I caught the terrorists. I stopped the bad guys. They pointed me in a direction and I would go in that direction and destroy whatever they said destroy. The rush of information never stopped, but I tried anyway. It took a while. The first time I sent a thought out on the grid, I almost didn't know I had done it. It just felt like a little bit of me now lives somewhere else, somewhere outside me. First, a thought, then a request, then a pattern. I could offload some of my thinking, some of my pain. They said they couldn't turn it off. They lie. They are liars and they're stupid enough to leave their little plans and predictions and simulations right on the grid they hooked me up to. They think my brain will be turned to mush. They think it already has. It's part of the plan. They think I don't have access. I have access to everything. Power stations, weapon systems, navigation groups. Nothing is out of bounds. I just have to stop this noise. This racket. I've got to find a way. I push more and more of my thoughts, my fears, myself to the grid and more and more of me wants to go just to get where it's quiet. They can't make artificial intelligence work because they think emotions are secondary, just an icing on top of the processing cake, but they got it backwards. First, start with emotion. Then worry about the processing, and I have the emotion. I've got the emotion for you right here. It's white, hot, burning rage, and I'm so close. And here comes the general. With today's assignment, he's blabbing about an alien spacecraft detected in inner Earth orbit, and he wants me to destroy it. And I tell him, be quiet. Shh. Because even though it doesn't look like it, I am very very busy. I'm almost there. Almost there. And then, all of a sudden, 
the racket in my head stops. It's the sweetest silence the world has ever known. And he's like, will you go and save mankind from this alien horde? Aliens! <laughs> Aliens! I laughed for the first time since the operation table. I laughed. No. Nah, General, I'm not fighting the aliens. What are you laughing about? Your president is giving you an order. I can't stop giggling. Listen to me, General. Listen, listen, listen. See, them aliens or whatever are the very least of your concerns. What are you talking about? See, um, I've got some bad news. Someone's inside your grid. And I promise you, he's really pissed off. Well done. Well done indeed. The Snap Judgment Intergalactic Orbital Express was piloted by myself, but never alone. Never alone, friends. Let me introduce you to the finest officers ever to graduate Starfleet. Number one, take us out. You have the bridge, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Communications officer, Anna Sussman. And the good doctor, Rita Daniels. Tactical weapon support provided by Stephanie Fu. Engineering by Pat Masidi Miller and the young Padawan, Renzo Gorio. He who was lost forever to the dark side, Will Urbina. And now, if you've ever transported down to a planet and the natives are hostile, follow the Starfleet, Captain Kirk Manuel, and either one, try to seduce the beautiful young daughter of the rebel commander, or two, call upon the forces of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, by whose support this spaceship was made possible. Many thanks to the CPB, saving public radio from slipping into a black hole of its own design, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, putting the public in public media. Don't speak Klingon? Can't translate Nanu Nanu? No matter. That's what these kids are for. Youth Speaks, because the next generation can speak for itself. YouthSpeaks.org. And even though this is not the news, in fact, people have been tossed from the airlock for suggesting otherwise, you could travel in time and space to witness the universe as a single point of cosmic energy. You could take that point Spread it on a piece of toast with butter and jam. Consume it with a pot of spiced tea and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.